Hello and welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from the University of Calgary campus and on Treaty 7 lands. My name is Nathan Taylor and my co-host is Jenny Kwong. Jenny kicks off the show with an interview from one of the players in Vertigo Theatre's Sleuth, which runs until December 17th. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Today, I'm speaking with Braden Griffiths about his new role in the play Sleuth at Vertigo Theatre. So welcome, Braden. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Jenny. So tell me about the play. What is it about? Yeah, uh, the play is about um, two men. Uh, we're at the house of Andrew, which is the character that I'm not playing. We're at the house of Andrew White, and Andrew invites over and uh, stick with me here, the lover of his wife. So I am currently sleeping with his wife, uh, and um, I come over, and Andrew and I, we're having our first conversation in real life. Um, it's, uh, and, and then I, from there, it's a game of, a bit of a game of one-upsmanship from that point on. So you're never really quite sure who has the upper hand in this conversation. Andrew holds the power for quite a bit, but then, we're never really sure. Perhaps uh, Milo, Tyndall, my character, is actually coming out on top in ways that maybe we're not really understanding. And I guess is is the rivalry between the two that's playing on the stage. And so I guess how does it uh, continue on from the first uh, meet, meeting? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, uh, it goes through a number of different... Jack Grinhouse is the artistic director of, of Vertigo Theatre, and he's interested this season in uh, a type of theater that sort of represents metamorphosis or involves some sort of metamorphosis or change within a character. And so as they, as they, it starts as a battle of wits between Andrew and Milo, and then it turns into, there are times when it becomes a physical battle between Andrew and Milo. And uh, the, uh, the sparring continues, I mean, essentially all the way through the play. And then there's a new character who's introduced at the top of Act 2 who also then continues sparring with uh, Andrew. And following through with this idea of metamorphosis, I think both men go through a big change as the show goes on and are perhaps changed permanently, uh, continuing after the show as well. And so tell me about the stage where this all takes place. Uh, yeah, the stage is uh, the Virgo Theatre, which is uh, just it's my favorite theatre to perform in Calgary. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful stage um, uh, down just underneath the Calgary Tower. So uh, if you head towards the Calgary Tower, you can see the marquees out front. It's just a, it's a stunningly beautiful sort of jewel that we have, this architectural jewel that we have that's kind of hidden underneath the Calgary Tower. <laughs> And how are rehearsals going? Uh, listeners will be hearing this interview a few weeks into the production, but I guess uh, you can still uh, let listeners in on some of the rehearsing uh, um, process that goes into the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the rehearsals are going very well. We're about a week and a half into rehearsals as I'm talking today. Um, and then we have about a week and a half left before we invite our first audience into the space. We don't officially open. There's a, there's a night called opening night uh, for another two weeks. 
But after about a week and a half here, we're going to start inviting people in to watch it for the first time. And because theater is at the heart a conversation between the actors on stage and the audience, even if we are pretending that they're not there, uh, those preview nights are really informative for us. So they're a part of the rehearsals as well, officially, even though the show will be ready within a week and a half. So, yeah, that's, they're going very, very well. And I've worked with Chris once before. Uh, and, no, at least twice before. And so uh, we know each other from uh, way back. But Charissa Richards uh, is, uh, is the phenomenal director. So we're, just, we're really lucky to have her in town and uh, guiding us through this process. And you've uh, done a number of plays with uh, Vertical Theatre, so what brings you back uh, every year? Well, yeah, I, as I said before, like, I love the theatre, the theatre itself, like the architectural theatre. I, I think that theatre is such a beautiful space to perform in. And then I love the mandate of the company, the, the mystery theatre mandate, which also sort of expands out into ghost stories and thrillers, the macabre. I love that mandate because it often creates shows where you can hit really high heights. Uh, they can be extremely funny. They can be extremely uh, tragic. They can be extremely scary. And all of those things sort of fit really well within this mystery or thriller genre. And so I love that challenge as an actor. It also means that you can do really classic work and you can do really modern work. It's sort of a, it's a great space to really test yourself against uh, test yourself against scripts that are really exciting uh, every every season and so I love coming back to Vertigo as long as they'll have me I'll come back <laughs> and was Sleuth being the holiday play, was Sleuth being the holiday play for uh, Vertigo Theater I guess uh, what do you hope uh, audiences take from this play yeah uh, a holiday show. I guess, I mean, it's set in the winter, <laughs> a classic sort of British uh, mystery thriller. It's set in a cottage house in wintertime. And so there's something comforting and cozy about that sort of English detective story set in a big cottage. A cottage is maybe the wrong word. It's kind of a mansion out there. They call it a cottage at times, but it's a mansion out there on the British East. So the snow is blowing in the background. And I don't know, I hope they take away the comfort of an English Christmas detective story. And I don't know, I hope they take away a few questions about what the mystery genre really is and what's keep, what, what we're able to, what we do as we watch the mystery genre, how culpable are we as we watch the mystery genre. And uh, I don't know, I, I hope they take away, they've seen, this is a really classic piece of mystery writing, so I hope they take, if this is their first time seeing Sleuth, I hope they take away the knowledge that they've seen one of the great ones, and I hope we can do it justice. Question Tell me more me? about the props to, that you get to use in the play and the... the, the um, oh, like the props yeah. and stuff that we get to use in the play? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the... the, um, the the set is it's designed by Andy Morrow. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of architecture. Um, I don't want to give too much away. There's some, there's some phenomenal staircases that get used in a number of ways throughout the show. Um, and Andrew, who is Chris Hunt's character, is a games player, he's called, or he calls himself in the show. And so there's just, the house is just 
uh, there were games scattered throughout the house. So like chess games, uh, there's a, there's an old Egyptian game called Sanat, and then the house is actually decked out uh, to represent Andrew's love of games. And so I think it's just a beautiful design, but I'm really excited to be on stage working within this design. And as it is, uh, I guess, a bit of a back and forth between yourself and Christopher Hunt's uh, character, and so I guess part of it is the wordplay as well as the, the I guess, a uh, sleuthing that is part of the fun of a mystery play. Yeah, 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 yeah. The wordplay is, is, like I said, this is a classic piece of, of writing. Uh, it's one that I've been aware of my entire life. My dad showed me the movie when I was a kid. And in the original sort of film adaptation, it's Michael Caine and uh, Laurence Olivier, who are two of the great British actors. And so there is, there's just, there's, phenomenal sort of repartee between these two characters. And that continues throughout the entire show. It really is it's only ever two people on stage at the same time, even though there are uh, three different actors within the show. Uh, and so it really is about one human says one thing, the other responds to that, and then the other responds to that in turn. And then that continues for the entirety of the show. And all of the tension is within that repartee. So it's a really exciting piece as an actor to try to tackle that challenge. All right. I guess uh, this is the end of the interview. Anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, no. I mean, I just, I, I hope audiences out there who are seeking uh, some form of theatrical entertainment this Christmas, I, I hope they come and check it out because uh, these types of classics, I mean, they don't come around very often and I just feel really blessed to be a part of it. So I hope we can share it together. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Brayden, for your time today. No, thank you, Jenny. Thanks. Have a really nice night. Yeah, have a good night. Bye now. Bye. That was Jenny Kwong in conversation with Brayden Griffiths from Sleuth at Vertigo Theatre until December 17th. Well, this is the final scheduled Arts Link until next year. January 22nd is when we'll be coming at you next. And to sort of celebrate the end of uh, the year and also the successful CGSW funding drive we had, I'm going to play you a little bit of a something. This is a, a nice little treat and a little bit of a retrospective of the work of Bruce McCall, who was a Canadian illustrator that died back in May of this year. Now, how do you do someone who's an illustrator on the radio? Good question. Man, oh man, am I glad to answer this one. Bruce worked for a time for the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and uh, he, his style, which uh, comes across in his multitude of copies uh, of covers for The New Yorker and his work for the National Lampoon magazine proper, uh, is what he described as retrofuturism, a nostalgia for a past that never existed. The closest thing I can think of to it in pop culture terms would probably be the uh, stylings of the Fallout game series. So if you've seen that, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, the the dream of having you know, nuclear-powered cars and, uh, you know, he would draw cars that are about a story tall to be driven by, you know, businessmen to go and foreclose on, uh, you know, people's farms, stuff like that. Uh, you'd have uh, diners on the, uh, the wings of giant airplanes or for his... Uh, his multi-page spread about the uh, HMS Tyrannic, the greatest, uh, the biggest thing in all the world. You can see the people hanging out on the decks of this uh, cruise liner with their nearest, uh, you know, neighbor about you know a kilometer away. Uh, he really played around with scale uh, quite well, and 
What is really fantastic about his flowery language is how well it translates into radio. So on December 1st, 1973, as I believe what, what it was, was um, this uh, airing of the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which featured something called The Romance of King Creosote. Now, The Romance of King Creosote appeared in a National Lampoon uh, magazine or a special of theirs uh, called the something like the Dictionary of uh, the Encyclopedia of Humor. But here we can see how uh, Bruce McCall, who is an ad man, a car ad man at that, um, works his flowery language into making a uh, sort of a, a uh, educational film for us that's going to explain the power and the utility of Creosote, King Creosote. In the cradle of King Creosote, monarch of the coal tar distillates, King Creosote, man's silent ally in the age-old struggle to stem the evil tide of wood rot, to preserve our American heritage of fences, utility poles, and dock filings for future generations yet to come. King Creosote. Railway tank car speeding through the rolling plains of Ohio with its precious cargo of coal tar. Here is where the romance of creosote truly begins. Another tank car, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another. The farmer waves a friendly greeting, for King Creosote is his ally too. Now, look out, Farmer Jones. But no time to stop and clear the carnage now, for King Creosote has a date with destiny. Night settles over Gary, Indiana, Creosote's iron citadel, and the train's long journey is over at last. Here on this specially built siding, longer than the entire railway system of San Marino, the tank cars disgorge their coal tar into the thirsty mouths of giant hoses, drinking through the long Indiana night like some mighty monster of old. A coal tar cocktail whose total volume is enough to supply every living American with a 12-ounce tumbler of coal tar. Drink on, giant hoses, while the watchman spans his vigilant guard. What is he dreaming? We can only guess and wait for dawn and the unfolding of the next chapter in our industrial drama. Dawn, then morning. Old Saul rises over the world's largest creosote refinery and its satellite buildings. Ladies in waiting in the royal court of creosote. The drainage station, the ammonia storage tanks, the sludge pit, the feeder pipes, the bagging shed. And looming from the surrounding man-made wasteland like some magic fortress built by the gods themselves. The creosote refinery. But no time to dawdle, for King Creosote is planning a busy day. Here in the purifying station, four million gallons of coal tar pour into these giant ladles every minute of every working day. Ladles heated to temperature hotter than the sun itself. The skilled ladle handler must move with care in his fireproof metal suit to avoid being burned to a crisp by the heat from this fiery cauldron. One false step and... But no use in screaming. The human voice is drowned under this Niagara of molten coal tar. 
reluctantly, we leave the confusion in the purifying station, for now it's puddling time. Puddling, the scientific alchemy that breaks down the molten coal tar, trapping impurities in these massive iron barrels. A miracle of precision timing fills each barrel to an exact preset level. One extra teaspoon and the barrel would brim over, leaking poisonous runoff through the entire puddling station. A hypnotic spectacle. Dip and fill. Dip and fill. Dip and... But the rescue squad is already on its way. And before the rising liquid can engulf our camera crew, we bolt the iron safety door behind us. The pulverizing mill. where the creosote dream begins to find its chemical fulfillment, where aromatic hydrocarbons are passed through pipes larger in diameter than the funnel of an ocean liner, and then brought here to these giant trays, heated once again and tortured in this mighty egg beater. Now, only an oily brown liquid remains. The embryo of King Creosote has been conceived. Lunchtime. A moment's pause. Now, back to work. But an informal moment as the foreman makes his rounds of the tank room. A monkey wrench on the floor. Time to laugh, even under the eye of King Creosote. But now, time to pick up his paycheck and get out. The final mixing process. Here in two separate vats, each large enough to contain the state of Rhode Island, only an expert can determine which is the runoff and which is the precious creosote extract. Is it the vat on the left or the right? A second opinion is called for. Now a third. Telephone lines. The wires hum with the urgent appeals. Soon, Gary, Indiana will be crowded with experts heading in from all over America. But we cannot wait, and so we look back in awe at the iron cradle of King Creosote, standing tense, waiting, ready at a moment's notice to start up again. But even when stilled, the smoke rolls black and oily from her chimneys, a farewell banner as we bid the monarch of coal tar distillates a fond adieu. Let us linger a moment longer to ponder man's wizardry and the ball of orange fire growing, growing, growing like a planet in creation. But now, the falling chimneys and a fireworks display to shame the 4th of July signal in a fitting climax that it is time to leave. Farewell, King Creosote, and to the fire department, Godspeed. The Romance of King Creosote, written by Bruce McCall, aired 50 years ago on the National Lampoon Radio Hour. And now here's another interview uh, from Jenny. This is from one of the filmmakers of a documentary that recently played at Cuff Docks. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Kawi. Today I'm speaking with Marley McDonald about the film Time Bomb Y2K. So welcome, Marley. Hi, great to be here. Great. So 
this is a film that's around 80 minutes long. So when did the idea um, come to you about this film? Yeah, so I directed this film with my friend Brian Becker, and we had actually already worked on a film together. Um, so we spent about two years working on this other film, and while we were working on it, we knew that we wanted to direct our own film. Um, so our G chat was filled with tons of ideas for movies for what our first directorial debut would be. And um, Brian is an archival producer, so he hunts around looking for footage and he came across this news package of a family prepping for Y2K and uh, sent it my way. And we both just sort of realized that here was this story from our childhood um, that we remember having this sort of like apocalyptic tinge. We both remember when we were kids experiencing this, but um, no one had made a movie about it. And there was a countdown baked in and we knew what the end of the film would be. It had to end on New Year's. So we started looking into it more. And the more and more we looked into it, we realized that this was really sort of the first crisis that America and the world went through in the internet age. And that we could use it as a way to explore the way that we relate to technology and relate to each other. And so uh, was it uh, over 20 years since uh, Y2K? I guess uh, lots of changes has happened in the media world and the internet world. And so I guess it's a sort of reflection back at what happened 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We definitely wanted to capture the spirit of the early 90s and our relationship to computer technology. Um, you know, I think we, we kind of set that up with seeing people in the computer store just being completely amazed by this technology that was coming out and sort of everyone's first interaction with a personal computer. Um, but I think what Y2K really revealed was just how dependent we already were on computer infrastructure. Um, and that felt like a very important thing to nail sort of our, our first encounter with the fact that we were dependent on these systems outside of ourselves that are sort of invisible in our daily life, but that if they weren't there would sow chaos. And so you have clips of, um, Bill Clinton and Al Gore installing the fiber cables that like many people have seen in installed in their neighborhoods and stuff like that. And so it's strange that 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 actually had to happen for the technology to work today because, uh, yeah, because uh, it's something that the technology companies still have to do, maintain, but then it's uh, sort of invisible to the many people who use it now. Yeah. Yeah, that was really important to us to try and show sort of the physical uh, inner workings, the physical way in which computers are manifested that still are invisible to us. I mean, they're during net day, that was net day where Bill Clinton and Al Gore installed computer cables in a school in California in 1996. Um, but yeah, they put them up in the ceiling so you don't even think about it. You don't see that there are these wires really connecting the whole world together. Um, and just kind of bringing that out, this idea that there is a physical reality to these things. And in fact, Y2K itself was, you know, created because of this physical limitation of computers. When computers were created, um, they used these things called Hollerith cards, which were only had 80 characters on them. So they decided in order to save space, literal physical space, 
they would only use two digits for the year date, which is what led us into the problem with the turnover from 99 to 00. Um, but yeah, that's that's a very important part to us, this sort of physical reality of computing. And did you get caught up into all the media attention to Y2K? Because I certainly remember that part uh, growing up as well. And so, uh, but in the end, I I was pretty skeptical and I didn't pay attention too much, even though it was part of daily life at that time. So what, what about you? Yeah, so I was actually uh, seven years old uh, during Y2K. And I remember it slightly. I mean, it was like a big New Year's party. We went over to our family friend's house to celebrate. Um, but... I didn't remember like exactly if my family did anything to prepare or kind of what my parents' relationship was to this idea that the world was gonna end at midnight. So I talked to my parents and my mom said that we filled up the tub with water just in case and that we went to Circuit City to get batteries. But my dad worked at Circuit City and we were there every weekend. So it definitely didn't stand out as a core memory that we were there buying batteries. Okay, and I guess it was a uh, great uh, seeing the archival in, uh, archival footage and how you were able to find all the uh, pieces to put together and what you had to leave out to, to put it into an 80-minute film, I guess. Yeah, we had an amazing team. So like I said, Brian, my co-director, is an archival producer. So he has long-standing relationships with networks and libraries across the country. Um, and we also had a great team. Peter Knox, our archival producer, and Shelby Fintech, um, our associate producer, who all did amazing work in tracking down and hunting all of that footage. And we ended up with 700 hours of archival footage that we then had to cut down into an 80 minute film. So again, it was the team on the other side, Katie Ann Gonzalez, our assistant editor, and myself and Maya Muma, who edited this uh, film, had a lot of work to try and figure out what the essential bits of that 700 hours of archival was. And to so many people who are in the new generation, this uh, Y2K didn't really happen in their lifetime, and so it's uh, strange uh, for older folks to uh, look at this film versus uh, people who are, have didn't go through it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that emerged when we first started researching this project is that hashtag Y2K is extremely popular among Gen Z on Instagram and TikTok. And it's sort of this return to the fashion of that era. Um, but a lot of them don't know about the actual computer crisis that was looming and why we even have the phrase Y2K. So it's been really great to be able to share the film with people from a younger generation who didn't experience it. Yeah. And I guess uh, uh, with uh, the film in Calgary for Cuff, I guess, uh, where does it go after uh, the festivals in the fall time? Yeah, so we had our premiere in March of this year, um, and we have been traveling around to festivals all year uh, with the film, which has been just such a treat to get out and share it with people in theaters. We feel like that's very important. Um, we actually have it playing in New York this week. Uh, Wednesday tomorrow at 8.45 at IFC and Thursday at 1.30 p.m. at IFC. 
as part of Duck NYC. And then we will have a week-long run in New York at DCTV from December 15th to the 21st. And one screening in LA on December 15th or December 12th. And then it'll be out on HBO on December 30th. So you can tune in and watch it on Max or it'll play on the uh, cable channel HBO. All right. Uh, thank you, Marley, for your time today. Anything uh, more to say before we wrap up? Uh, no, just thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for everyone to get to see the film at Cuff uh, and can't wait to to hear what everyone thinks. If they feel like, you know, reaching out to us, we love to get feedback and talk to people. So you can just get our emails from the programmers and we'd love to uh, keep the discussion alive. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Marley, for your time today. Thanks so much. That was Jenny's conversation with Marley McDonald, director of Time Bomb Y2K, which was part of the 11th Cuff Docs Documentary Film Festival, put on by the Calgary Underground Cinema. Well, that's all the time we have for ArtsLink this month. We'll talk to you folks again on January 22nd.